Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon from Hope Church Toronto North. It is our prayer that through this message, you are challenged and encouraged by the Word of God and grow in your love for God and love for others. It is God's desire for us to be members of and regularly participate in a local church under the care of qualified elders. If you are not attending a local church right now, we encourage you to take that step. If you do live in the North York area and are looking for a local church, we invite you to visit us at one of our Sunday morning gatherings to discern if this is the church God is leading you to. So we're in Luke chapter 16. You can turn there, verses 19 to 31. Uh, The title of the sermon today is Being a Good Steward. Being a Good Steward. Now, I'm sure all of you can agree with this statement that preachers repeat themselves often. Everyone can say amen to that. Preachers repeat themselves often. I do it when I'm up here, Pastor Marv, whoever comes up, we repeat ourselves often. And I want to give a little bit of an apologetic for that. See, Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, he says that it causes him no trouble to write the same things to them. There's a ministry of repetition that Paul is okay with. And sometimes that's okay because there's things that God really wants us to hear. And there's things that God wants us to hear over and over again because they're really important for us. Uh, See, I was working on the message this week and and I was talking to Natalie and she said, what's your message going to be about this week? And so I told her my big idea and she said, isn't that the exact same thing you said last week? I said, well, essentially, I mean, I don't get to decide what I'm going to say. The text decides that. And so if you remember last week, uh, we said that the future motivates how we live now. The big takeaway last week was Christ's return in the future motivates wise living now. But the passage today that we're in, Luke wants us to see that how we live now determines the future. How we live now determines our life in eternity. See, Jesus, through the parable that we're looking at this morning, he he tells us how he expects us to live, how to steward our lives. And he tells us this, first of all, that God expects us to be good stewards of our resources. God expects us to be good stewards of our resources. Let's look at verse 19. There was a rich man who would dress in fine in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. See, Jesus is describing for us in this story two individuals, and they couldn't be more opposite in their situations. Like north and south, they were completely opposite. See, the rich man is described as being dressed in in purple and fine linen and feasting lavishly every day. What Luke is trying to do for us in describing this and Jesus telling the story is he's telling us that this man is crazy rich and he's not afraid and shy about stuffing his face every single day. But the poor man, he's covered in sores and he's lying at the gate. This likely means that he's unable to walk for one reason or another and he's hungry. 
And to top it all off, he's covered in sores, and dogs would come and lick them. This rendered him ceremonially unclean. But one thing I want you to notice and not miss, if you look at verse 20, we are told the name of that poor man, Lazarus. This is the only time in one of the parables of Jesus that we're given a name for one of the characters in his story. This right away shows us the heart of Jesus for the poor. See, the rich man is is nameless because he can represent any of us. But the poor man is given a name. It shows that God is aware of the poor person's situation and cares for them personally and individually. He knows your name. See, God's eyes are on the needy. They matter to him, and they should matter to us as well. God helps them, and so should we, because they're made in God's image, and so they're worthy of dignity, respect, and value. This is why, as a church, we should be, and we are committed to supporting and helping the needy within our church family. We call that benevolence. We're committed and we want to continue to be committed to supporting and helping the needy in North York. That's called community care. We want to be doing these things as a church because it matters to God and it should matter to us. But Jesus continues in his story. Look at verse 22. One day the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. See, there's a saying, death is the great equalizer because it comes for all of us. It doesn't care how much you have or how little you have. We are all going to die. And these two individuals die, but they go to two completely different places. See, Lazarus dies and he's carried away by the angels. Do you see again, God is giving dignity to the one who had no dignity in life. He's treating him like Enoch and Elijah. He's giving him dignity, and he's carried away to Abraham's side. And in this parable, that's, that's the place of the faithful. But, but the rich man, he dies, and he's buried, and he's in torment in Hades. See, that's a Greek word meaning the realm of the dead, and in this parable, it's used to describe hell. The rich man then sees Abraham and Lazarus far away and speaks out finally. Look at verse 23. And being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. See, in this conversation with Abraham, the rich man's heart is exposed as as selfish and self-deceived. See, he's selfish because if you notice in verse 24, he asks for Lazarus to be sent to serve him. Even after death, the rich man considers this poor man beneath him, that the poor man needs to come and serve him. He's exposed as selfish. But another big thing I don't want you to miss is did you know, did you notice that the rich man knew his name? The rich man knew that he could call the poor man Lazarus. This exposed that he knew this man's situation, the person who was lying at his gate every day and did nothing to help him. And so 
the call to us as individuals, as a church, is that if we know individuals who are suffering, who are hurt, who are needy, don't ignore them. Don't be like this man who knows the name of that person but does nothing. Help them in any way that you can. Now we've said this a number of weeks ago and we've repeated it often, but it needs to be said again that we need to be wise though in how we do this. We need to be wise because God has placed us not with just single spheres of responsibility. We have other responsibilities and we have limits to our own resources. So the priority needs to be our immediate family and then after the needy within our local church body and then as we are able to be generous and considerate of those who are outside. Now that doesn't mean we always have to use our own resources because our limits might prohibit us from doing that. But a compassionate and generous heart seeks to connect them with others who can help as well. So he's selfish. He's exposed as selfish. But he's also exposed as self-deceived. Did you notice again in verse 24, he calls Abraham his father. See, the Jews at that time thought that Abraham, the father of their faith, would welcome his family into eternity. The rich man believed that because he was part of Abraham's biological family that he was guaranteed a place in heaven. And he's wrong. He's wrong because Lazarus was in fact the one who was welcomed to Abraham's side and not him. The thing that guarantees us a place and a spot in eternity in heaven is our faith, not family. If you have faith in Christ, your spot and your place is secure. People who have faith in Jesus are the true children of Abraham. See, true Christians are not people who come from a Christian background, but true Christians are people who have turned from themselves and from sin and have turned to God in repentance to the one who extends mercy generously. Well, Abraham hears a rich man out and finally replies to him. Look at verse 25. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received good things just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here while you are in agony. Abraham explains to this rich man that his bad stewardship of his resources now stand as a witness against him. I want to clarify a few things. This is not a judgment on having wealth or possessions. God gives these things to us to help us live, to enjoy wisely, and to use generously to help others. This is where we need to be good Bible readers. We need to put ourselves in the context of this passage. We've got to remember that in verse 19, this rich man is exposed as someone who used his wealth selfishly. He, he self-indulged in, to the neglect of others. And then we have to remember that the audience that Jesus is talking to in verse 14 are the Pharisees who pride themselves of this appearance of religiosity, but inside are lovers of money. See, what we are being warned of is the abuse and misuse of wealth and possessions. This rich man shows us that he was mastered by his possessions rather than being a master over his possessions as a good steward should be. This is the point that Jesus makes, in fact, in verse 13, earlier in chapter 16. 
Jesus says this, no servant can serve two masters since either he will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. How we steward our resources and our wealth reveals what and who we love and what or who truly our master is. If Jesus is the master over our lives, we will use the resources that he's given to us that are his anyways. We will use them in the way that he's asked us to use them, wisely and generously for his glory. Now there's also an encouragement here to the believer who is suffering in this life. Like Lazarus, all earthly suffering and wanting will be turned into everlasting joy and comfort for the believer in the presence of God. Now I'm not saying though that if you are needy and suffering and wanting that you should just grin and bear it because one day God will make it right. If you are suffering and struggling right now, don't hide it. We're a family. Speak to your brothers and sisters, even today, if you need to do that. Speak to someone here, your brothers and sisters, and let them serve you and help you. Don't, don't try to do this on your own. But the consolation is that God will, in fact, in eternity, give you all comfort. So we look forward to that. Now, Abraham doesn't finish his answer there. He keeps going. Look at verse 26. Besides all of this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you, so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot. Neither can those from there cross over to us. What Abraham tells us is that these realities after death are fixed for eternity. See, this parable teaches us a few things about the afterlife. That the judgment of our lives happen immediately after death. That both believers and unbelievers are conscious and aware of their eternal state. That we enter right away either into suffering or blessing, heaven or hell, which are real places. And the eternal state of those who have died are irreversible. And it also teaches us that our faith, which grants us entrance into heaven, is in part validated by our stewardship of the resources that God has given to us. That our faith, which grants us entrance into heaven, is validated and verified in part by how we steward our resources that God has given to us. Now I want to again make it very clear what I am meaning and what I'm not meaning. Jesus is not teaching salvation by works. Jesus is teaching salvation with works. We are saved by faith alone, but not faith that remains alone. We see this tension in even Paul's letter in Ephesians. Now, if you haven't come to our Bible studies, you need to. On uh, Thursday nights, we've been going through the book of Ephesians slowly and regularly. And so if you've been in our Bible studies, you know what I'm about to say. And you, if you don't, you need to start coming out. I keep plugging it every time I'm up here because it's important that we study the word together. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's God's gift, not from works so that no one may boast. 
But look at what Paul continues to say. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand in time for us to do. How we steward our resources in the way God tells us to is one of the evidences of saving grace. It doesn't save us, but it's one of the evidences of saving grace in us. Remember our big takeaway. How we live now determines our life in eternity. Once we die, there's no changing anything. But here's some good news. You're not dead. If you're here, you're breathing. Put up your hand if you're alive. It should be all of you. That's some good news because that means every breath that you take is an opportunity for you to receive mercy and grace, for for you to turn in repentance to Christ and secure your future in heaven. See, we become part of God's family by faith, not by works. We've already established that. But as part of God's family, he expects us to live a particular way. Well, here's some more good news. God doesn't leave us on our own to be able to do this. He gives us his Holy Spirit by which we are able to do the things that he calls us to do. He empowers us by himself to do the work that he's called us to do. Well, there's even more good news. I'm just piling all of this on your plate right now. The the good news is that we can even know what he expects of us through his word. He hasn't left us stumbling in the dark. We can know what he expects of us, how he expects his people to live by his word. And that's why, and it leads us to our second point. God expects us to be good stewards of his word. God expects us to be good stewards of his word. Let's look at verse 27 to the end. Father, he said, then I beg you to send him to my father's house because I have five brothers to warn them so that they won't also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But he told him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises even from the dead. For the first time in this whole parable, the rich man finally thinks of someone other than himself. Knowing that his eternal state is now fixed, there's no changing it, his attention then turns to his five brothers that are living the exact same way as him. And so he turns to to Abraham and his solution is, send Lazarus, send someone from the dead, give them a sign and they'll believe. But Abraham gives the same response two times. Look at verse 29 and 31. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, they should listen to them. Verse 31, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. One of my favorite artists, beautiful eulogy in their song, Symbols and Signs, says this, I'll give you a sign that is obvious. One of the most supernatural acts is that God, through his word, has actually revealed everything pertaining to life and godliness. Abraham gives pretty much the same answer. He says, they don't need a sign. They have the word. It tells them all that they need to know. 
This is called the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. See, it's defined as this, that God gives us all that we need to know him, to be saved, and to live wisely. That God has given us everything that we need in his word to know about him, to love him, to be saved, and to live wisely. The word of God gives us everything pertaining to life and godliness. It encourages us and tells us and instructs us how to handle money and manage our debt. It tells us how we should approach alcohol and money and sex. It tells us how we should make good decisions. It tells us how we should rest and not overwork. It tells us how we should engage and treat and respect unbelievers. It tells us how we should be wise with our words. It tells us how we should depend on God in all of our life. Like trying to build a piece of Ikea furniture after throwing out the manual or trying to write an assignment after discarding the syllabus. It's going to be impossible to live a life that pleases God without his word. This is why Christians throughout history have called the word of God the the perfect treasure of heavenly instruction. We are good stewards of God's word. When we know the word by reading it, when we study the word, and when we live the word by doing it. This is why Abraham tells us, tells the rich man and his brothers and tells us to engage in an act of wisdom. Listen. Listen to them. Listen to the word. Abraham explains and goes on to explain that those who dismiss the Bible will not be persuaded even if the dead are raised. That those who dismiss the Bible will not be persuaded even if the, death, the dead are raised. And the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ proves this point, does it not? That Jesus died, he was buried, he was raised again to life, and he appeared to over 500 witnesses. That the grave was empty, there was no body to be found, and still only a few believed. See, this informs our evangelism, that it tells us that the barrier isn't primarily intellectual, that it's not a demand for proof, but it's a hard-heartedness that leads to unbelief. And so our responsibility then is to share the word plainly. As Paul tells us, we don't mess with the word. We don't try cunning and underhanded ways in our presentation of the word. We present it plainly because we know that nothing else will convince people. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't use uh, rationality and logic in our presentation of the gospel. We still have to be coherent and make sense. But we realize that only by the Spirit's working in the hearts of unbelievers will faith and belief come about. And so we plainly share the, the word of God with others and we leave the results to God. We're good stewards when we do this. We steward God's word well with our witness to others. And we also marvel though, that God has not left us stumbling in the dark, but he has given us a light to our path through his word. See, the scriptures are God's self-revelation to us. The Holy Spirit that authored the scriptures gives it to us as a witness of the Son and his work and his life who was sent as a revelation of the Father to us. 
God's word is alive and active. God, by his spirit, preserves it, speaks through it, and through it accomplishes his purposes in the world. That's why it's wise for us to listen to his word. That's why it's wise of us to be good stewards of it. See, growing up in a, in a Sri Lankan home, my, uh, my parents had a number of expectations for me. One, don't act out in public or else. That was, that was all that was stated. We had to greet every single individual adult personally and have a, a conversation with them before we could move on to anything else. If we entered the room, we had to do that. And then finally, we had to become either an engineer, an accountant, or a doctor. Sam, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. See, my parents had a bunch of expectations from me as, as one who was part of their family. Now, in the same way, God expects us as those who are part of his family to be good stewards of his resources, to be good stewards of his word. Because it shows and, and evidences that we are part of his family and it secures our future. Remember, how we live now determines our life in eternity. God in his grace has showed us how. And so it's wise of us to listen, to steward well the things he's given to us, to steward well the word that he has given to us. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you again that you've given to us a word we pray that by your spirit that you would use what you have intended to teach your people and that you would cause it to take deep root in our hearts, but that it would bear much fruit in our lives, that we wouldn't be like the, the man who sees ourselves in a mirror and then walks away forgetting what we look like, that we would look into the word that it would cause change in us and that we would live accordingly. Help us by your spirit be the good stewards that you've called us to be. And that as we do so, that we would be a display of, of your character to the watching world. Continue to work in us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. For more resources or information about Hope Church, visit hopetorontonorth.com.